Welcome to another episode of Hemp Barons. On today's show, Joy's guest shares stories from his incredible hemp career. From Amsterdam and San Diego, and many points along the way, this true hemp pioneer is now a driving hemp construction material force. And he lays out a compelling argument why our future depends on the construction industry transitioning to hemp-based products. Let's join Joy's conversation with Dion Markgraf from the U.S. Hemp Building Association. Well, hello, Dion. Thank you for being with us on Hemp Parents today. Well, thanks for having me. It's very unusual. We've certainly had some of the major pioneers, some of your close friends and colleagues over the last several decades, but it's a, a treat and an unusual one. And you certainly uh, are a major pioneer who has been fighting for all forms of cannabis uh, in multiple countries on at least two continents for a number of decades. So currently, of course, your role is board of director and, in fact, a major organizer and co-founder of the United States Hemp Building Association, U.S. Hemp Building Association. And as you know, HempCrete uh, is near and dear to my heart. It's actually my favorite product of the thousands of products that we can make with this versatile, valuable plant. But as we do with everybody, and particularly when we have someone as special as you, in hemp years, you've been around for 150 years. <laughs> Please tell us what got you interested uh, in cannabis and in hemp to begin with. Well, I uh, was in university and I was looking for a subject to write my senior thesis in political science uh, on. And I discovered a little bit about uh, cannabis, marijuana, and um, the more I looked into it, the, you know, the more it was. And it was, you know, paper and clothes. And, and at the time, it was like the height of the drug war. So I thought, wow, it just seems politically odd and interesting. So the more I looked into it, just the more there was. And, you know, Jack Herrera's book the emperor wears no clothes that just come out and that sucked me in and that was the rest was has been history like you, you and i of course and so many folks who really that was the platform that was the impetus and the trajectory that changed our lives was in fact that book and i believe that the first edition of jack harris book the emperor wears no clothes was published around 1985 so that is and certainly that is sort of the height of the drug war. That's the period of time you're talking about. Am I right? Yeah, but as you're alluding to the second edition with uh, that Chris Conrad uh, helped edit was really the, you know, the better big one that sort of catapulted things. Indeed. And that was the version that I got, although what changed what changed my life was just getting a mere flyer of it with excerpts of the book of these facts about hemp and that at, at a Grateful Dead show in 1990 and sort of that convergence of social justice, a sense of, of justice in general, um, and planetary healing converging and coming together and saying, wait, what? There's a solution here and they've gone and criminalized the solution and it's safe and it has this huge global history and United States history. What is going on? So you took that and you ran with it. Were you in the European Union at the time? Or were you here in the United States? Yeah, I was at San Diego State and uh, did my senior thesis in political science and history using hemp. And when I was doing my research, I had been and seen 
uh, about Amsterdam, but I, I, you know, doing this research, I just, you know, looked in more how they were sort of the exception. And after school, I ended up going uh, there and getting involved in the, the scene there because a lot of people knew about, um, you know, smoking the plant, but they didn't know about anything else. And it was there that you found your way ultimately to, am I right? Did you work at the Hemp Marijuana and Hash Museum at any point while you were living in Europe? Yeah, so that's where I, I started there. And, um, you know, I basically was going back and forth to California and there started to be hemp products you know, hats and stuff like that. So I would bring them back and put them in the in the hash museum, and everyone would be like, "Oh, can I buy that hemp hat?" And I'd be like, "No." And that went on for a while, and then I was like, "Dang, I'm just gonna open my own store and you know do this." So I opened the uh, first hemp store in Europe in 1993, and we kicked it off by starting the High Times Cannabis Cup in our shop. And so after that, we, you know, became very popular quickly. I'll say, so it's amazing, the American, although Dion Margraf, of course, is your name. It's a Dutch name. And if folks look how it's spelled, they'll understand that. So here you are, an American delivering hemp textiles and hemp products to Holland, essentially, in the in the early 90s. Is that what we're to understand? Yeah, and they... There was uh, a renaissance right at the same time of the Dutch starting to grow again, which led to the Germans growing and basically a sort of European revival, even though there was still going like, say, in France and Eastern Europe, it was kind of like pushed into the the underbelly of uh, industrial products like in furniture and, you know. And then with the whole hype of Amsterdam, combining it with, you know, these new hemp products, we got, you know, a lot of media attention and things, you know, really blew up from there. They sure did. In fact, my first trip to Amsterdam, and I'm certain you were there, was to be a judge at the High Times Cannabis Cup uh, in November of 1995. And that was a really special one that I'm sure you remember because Alex Gray, the very famous uh, visionary artist, and his wife, an equally famous one, Alison Gray, uh, they were there for the cup, along with Stephen Gaskins and Sam Tuzzi from the Rainbow family as the high priest. Uh, and Alex had drawn Cannabia, which was uh, the, the mascot for that particular cannabis cup. And we did, at the Melkweg there in Amsterdam, an international hemp fashion show with fashions from all over the world. And I, there were very few females in the movement at that time, as you might remember. And so I was not only one of the very few females that were judging the cup that year, but I was the only one that had long dreadlocks. And uh, so they put me in that hemp fashion show. So let's bring now, sort of moving up into the modern day, um, at what point did you leave Europe? When did you leave Europe? I only, I, when the medical marijuana law passed in California in 96, I thought this great revolution was going to happen in California and everything was going to change. So I came back to California just to sort of visit. You know, things for me in Holland were going great. 
you know, I had a lot of success in business and I came back to sort of check things out. But of course, everyone here was so dang afraid of the government that no one was doing anything. So I ended up opening the first dispensary, uh, medical dispensary in San Diego, ended up getting prosecuted and having, you know, a decade and a half struggle of fighting with the government with court cases and totally a horrible time. So that's how I ended up back here. How did that court case end up? With uh, the government stealing my child and me making a plea bargain to leave the country. And that's how I then I moved back to Europe for many years. And then the CBD industry started getting going. And so from afar, I was actually living in Mexico that time. Uh, I started working with the CBD company that got the whole thing going, basically, you know, commercializing CBD across the country and around the world. And that company and one of the main guys, Michael Yarmas, was making a tremendous amount of money. And I was trying to get him to and the company to get into hempcrete because I knew that was going to be the biggest, best thing coming down the pike, bigger than the cannabinoids. So that's when I moved more to that direction. How about Vote Hemp? Can you tell us a little bit about the impetus of Vote Hemp, which I think, well, I know, came before your relationship with the cannabinoids and your incredible work internationally with delivering cannabinoids. Let's, let's not skip the Vote Hemp piece. What happened there? Well, Vote Hemp, I mean, that was with Eric. I mean, we go all the way back to Amsterdam. Eric was a part of, uh, Eric Steenstra was a part of um, Ecolution. It was actually owned and run by Steve D'Angelo of Harborside fame. They started producing hemp jeans, and we were the first ones to sell them in Europe. And, yeah, I kept in touch with Eric and all that over the years. And Vote Hemp, you want to talk to folks about that idea. Uh, Vote Hemp was, of course, a 501c, still exists today, still Eric Steenser is the president of that board, is a 501c4 advocacy organization for hemp. And for many, many moons, the right-arm partner of the Hemp Industries Association the 501c6 trade association, but it we needed a, a lobbying organization to complement the trade association because, of course, different nonprofits uh, have different limitations of things that they can do to continue to get their tax-exempt nonprofit status, and we needed that lobbying arm. So I believe with David Bronner and Eric Steenstra, and I, I met Eric for the first time. I didn't realize it was Eric until years later, but at that very same Cannabis Cup, Ecolution made lots of fashions and was part of that fashion show. And of course, they had a, a booth um, there. But uh, so vote hemp, hardcore education and advocacy. And uh, you were such a big part of that as you still are today. Um, I also remember... I believe it was the 2012 Medical Cannabis Cup, High Times Medical Cannabis Cup. High Times owns that word, Cannabis Cup, folks. So when you hear that, you can assume it's High Times or someone's getting a cease and desist letter. Uh, and they had a, a Medical Cannabis Cup in Seattle in 2012. And I'll never forget walking in and there was this big double booth, hemp meds, it said. And there was 
some CBD gum and some other products there. And I believe you were there at that cup behind that booth educating folks about those cannabinoids, the hemp-derived CBD. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, I got in about that time. Um, you know, it was it was a whole weird evolution how the whole CBD thing happened. You know, surprisingly, you know, so many in the marijuana and hemp industry were against CBD, I suppose, because it was something new and different. And I would also say that it's sort of in the middle between, you know, marijuana people thought it was too much like hemp and hemp people thought it was too much like marijuana. So, yeah, there was a lot of hate in the beginning on CBD. And so it was weird because, you know, I'd been in the industry before almost all these people who are I help recruit into the industry. And then they were turning on me because I was promoting, you know, another aspect of the plant. And, you know, to me, I found it very strange because, you know, for me, the the plant is one big whole thing and we want to promote the whole thing. Part of the, you know, economic viability of the whole process and plant. Well, you're absolutely right. And it's been a a fascinating journey from a social science perspective and and the way that's playing out now is in state legislatures where we've got, you know, people say, boy, I bet that big oil and big paper, they're really fighting hemp legalization. And the answer is no, they are not. They recognize that they need to move on to renewable resources and they recognize the value that hemp is. We still contend with big pharma, of course, in a big way. We probably also still contend with the alcohol industry when we're talking about medical and adult use uh, forms of, of cannabis, not that alcohol has anything to do with medical cannabis. It's just that they seem to be fighting all of it, but it's the marijuana industry itself, the adult use and medical uh, marijuana industry itself, which sometimes comes up against hemp interests in state legislatures now. And there's, there are some competing interests there. Hemp, hemp doesn't see it that way, but certainly uh, these other legalized medical and adult use cannabis markets do. So that it's fascinating in that respect. Yeah, we've seen that in California. The uh, the marijuana cannabis industry has been sort of, you know, fighting the hemp industry. And yeah, it's the, the whole evil evolution of things. Seems now CBD and that cannabinoid is the big player in driving the whole industry. But I think... <clears throat> You know, to a certain extent, now farmers and everyone have gotten into it, you know, sort of made a few steps into it. And a lot of people are realizing the bigger picture is the industrial products that come from hemp with, you know, construction materials, especially. Absolutely. The trillion dollar industries, as we say, the oil, seed and fiber industries that hemp serves, which is all of them. So... And we could talk for hours and hours, but we want to talk about hempcrete. And I'm sitting here, and this is where you and I, even though we have so, so much in common, ridiculous amounts in common, um, with not only just what we do, what with, what, but with what we like, with who we like, uh, where we like to go. But hempcrete is, you know, you are my brother in hempcrete, and it's a, it's a special little tribe that is obsessed with this mold, rot, fire, and pest-resistant construction infill that provides the ideal indoor air quality that with a properly sized wall, depending where you are in the climate, closer to a pole or the equator, 
and good windows, you can keep your interior temperature at 60 degrees Fahrenheit every year without a heating or a cooling system. It lasts for hundreds of years. It's renewable. It's recyclable. I could go on and on, but what I'm most thrilled about is that right now I am standing inside of the world's first mobile hempcrete home, which you and I and Stephen Clark and Sergey, and you're going to remind me of the beautiful brother, I think it's Abraham, um, also from Mexico with Stephen, and from the Heaven Grown in Mexico, and of course, Greg Flaval. And thanks to your incredible leadership and in getting it all together, we created this beautiful mobile hempcrete home on wheels with French doors, and I slept in it last night, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. And we did it in three days and sent it off to had it towed. Dr. Bronner's came, I think it was five o'clock in the morning and it was still curing, freshly poured. Oh my God, we were so nervous and towed it off to Balboa Park for Earth Day in San Diego where you were in charge of the Canna Village, all the things that you've done here. Let's talk for a while about how, how did you get introduced to hempcrete and, and give us some stats, brother. Really lay it on us. You do such a great job in your public speaking of telling people why this is so incredibly important, this particular construction material, the tremendous impact that it will have and has. Yeah, well, I found out all the way back in Amsterdam, actually, you know, the French people came into our shop and uh, who started the whole, uh, you know, using hemp and lime and so i thought you know it was just one of those you know many uses that i thought would just blow up and be huge and you know i didn't necessarily concentrate on it but over the years it's you know no one's been doing it and with our eco crisis and knowing how much this can address it address it i became more and more you know attuned to it and yeah, it's just, you know, the being here in California, seeing all these fires and, you know, this is the the product that ticks so many of uh, the boxes that need to be addressed. You know, construction is the biggest source of pollution. Over 40% of CO2 comes just from construction. And hemp is, of course, um, carbon negative. So we could turn one of the biggest problems into one of the biggest solutions. And the same with waste. Over half the waste uh, in our landfills comes from construction and hemp is zero waste. So those are just such big factors in the whole humanity survival scheme of things that, you know, I've been just concentrating all my effort into it. And you think about it, we're about to um, add 2 billion more people to the planet. So statistically, well, for example, here in California, we need 3.5 million homes just to get to where we need to be in a non-crisis setting. But in the future, we need to add statistically a billion square feet of housing every which is about the size of New York City, um, every 35 days for the next 35 years. So with that kind of demand, you know, in that perspective, we really don't have hope without hemp. You know, 
that if unless we really dive in and get this going ASAP, you know, we're not going to be able to turn this thing around. So that's why I was, you know, happy to participate and get going uh, this U.S. Hemp Building Association, where you know we're such a small beginning uh, right now, but we need to blow this thing up into basically everything we see should be made with hemp, and we need to turn this around now. And so I'm, you know, putting all my effort into it. And we have a lot of good programs going. So for less than $10 a month, you could, you know, help us and be a member and spread the word. And one of the big things we're working on now, which is the real deal breaker, is certifying hempcrete as a building material, which is really holding it back at this point. And I think after we have that within a year, I absolutely want to talk about that. I, I want to make sure the listeners know that. So right now, and, and I'm excited after we talk about the ICC, that we talk about the recent incredible fire rating that was just received. Hempcrete is not internationally rated. So, and that's the key to building planning and getting your plans approved and building things up to code in your particular jurisdiction. Now, there have been many hempcrete structures that have gone up in the United States. The first one went up in 2010. Uh, hemp Technologies, a good friend of ours, good friends of ours, um, that built that first permitted hempcrete home in Asheville, North Carolina, or near Asheville. It was actually for the mayor of Asheville, North Carolina, and many hempcrete homes and structures. In fact, the first certified platinum lead home, uh, hempcrete home, is also in Asheville. So they're up. But what it requires is for homeowners and builders or developers who want to use this material, they become advocates by default because they've got to educate and persuade their building departments, building and planning departments, to allow them to use this alternate building material. And in some jurisdictions, that's easy because these uh, they're very sophisticated um, building and planning department personnel who are familiar with alternate building solutions in green and sustainable building materials. And then there are others where it's quite difficult. And if we can also just put this in perspective supply chain wise, that we had 511,000 acres of hemp permitted to grow in the United States in the 2019 growing season. Um, now, about 230,000 of those acres were actually planted due to lack of genetics, lack of funding, lack of land, lack of equipment, all kinds of things. And then about 50 to 60 percent of that crop was actually harvested, perhaps around 115,000 acres, although much of it sits there because so much of it was overproduced, produced for this inflated extract or CBD market. And what we really want, again, is for our farmers to prepare for the trillion-dollar industries, prepare for the oil, seed, and fiber industries, and prepare for hemp processing infrastructure to come to a city near you. Ultimately, we want to see these processes, processing and manufacturing um, facilities, whether they're for hemp seed oil and grain to make into densely nutritious foods and bulk food ingredients from that incredible seed, which is the most digestible form of protein on the entire planet animal kingdom, and of course has, a, has the beautiful and perfect ratio of omega-3s and 6, or whether it's for that long, strong fiber, that outer bast fiber, or the many, many industries it serves, or that inner woody core. 
but we need the farmers to be able to sell the biomass, these strong, valuable plants that they grow. And the minute we can get hempcrete rated, particularly international, and the holy grail of that international rating system is ICC, International Certification Code. Once that happens, that's going to give the green light for building and planning departments in every jurisdiction to be able to entertain and approve this as a building material. Not only are we going to be solving housing crisis, pollution crisis, landfill crisis, we're going to be giving that immediate market to our farmers that can just feed that herd, that inner woody core of the hemp stock, which is what hempcrete is made of, herd a special type of lime and water, and it will just open up that entire market. Um, so it's just, it's just so incredibly important. So tell us about this, this sort of chase to get the rating, brother, and how U.S. Hemp Building Association is working with that. Well, yeah, it seems to be, uh, you know, before I sort of tackled the situation, it seemed like a daunting task from the outside. And there was sort of like urban myths uh, built around the, how difficult what it, it or was or is. And the more I've been engaged in, you know, trying to address it, the yeah, the easier it seems and more possible it seems. So, you know, just the process of the USHBA, you know, engaging, which, you know, a lot of times in life, that's what it takes, right? Is just, you know, getting up and doing it. And it's magically been coming together. The, the ASTM, which is part of the whole uh, process, They've been super helpful, and it's been a great way to get organized. And they contacted the ICC for us, and they're excited to work with us. And now we're just in the funding phase of getting some money together to open the door. And then we're going to bring in different companies <clears throat> with their different products and set a range of acceptable parameters that other people can, you know, therefore exceed. And that's um, when it comes to the herds and the binder. So th to make sure they're within a range of acceptable, acceptable, uh, acceptable uh, specs. So that's what we're busy with now, bringing in the different companies uh, to get their products analyzed. And one company through Hempitecture just submitted for a fire burn rating and just was published recently. And the fire rating was zero. So on a scale of 450 to zero, it was a zero fire spread. And it, they said it was the first time they had ever seen such a, a rating and a test. And when we... When we say they, do do we know the they that gave that rating of zero? Uh, ASTM. Oh, it was ASTM that gave the rating. Actually, yeah. American Standard of Testing and Measurements. And we yeah. certainly uh, talk about them on the show from time to time because they play such an important, as you say, role in these emerging industries. They created that D37 Committee on Cannabis. About three or so, potentially four, I think time goes by so quickly now, years ago, and then multiple subcommittees, including the subcommittee on Hempcrete. So just 
I love to watch these and experience these coalitions working together. Right. So they only created the hempcrete uh, uh, section due to the, the U.S. HBA engaging with them. And so that only started in December. So that was a historic great milestone. But by the beginning of January, the ICC were already connected to us. And again, you know, we've got now this, the, the whole thing is right in front of us. Now we just need to raise the money, uh, which is not that much money. You know, it's actually $10,000 just to open the report and getting the ICC dedicating their, um, you know, civil engineers to basically hold our hand through the process. So they're very excited. We're very excited. Now we just have to, now we just have to do it, basically raise the money, organize the the materials and the companies and get it done. And once we got it done by the end of the year, I hope my next goal is to make it illegal not to use hemp. Ha <laughs> I know? love it. I love it. Because it's so superior in so many ways. And my understanding is that, you know, the most that this process may cost is, and this is a joint process. This is a USBA is taking this on. Nobody can own this. Um, this is, this is doing it for the people, for the farmers, for the industry, for the planet and for the plant. The most it might cost, depending on various factors, would be up to potentially $44,000, but literally nothing, a small, teeny, tiny, nothing of a drop in the bucket to create an entire industry with the impact of truly epic proportions in terms of planetary healing, um, housing the homeless in truly non-combustible, sturdy, healthy buildings that hold uh, and regulate thermal energy and humidity, um, and that, again, give our farmers that immediate market for their herd. We just need simple decortication, which folks who listen to this show know is the separation of the outer bark, the bast fiber, from the inner woody core, the herd of that stock. And then it simply needs to be processed into a particular geometric particle range and removed of the majority of its bast fiber and chaff that got in mixed in with the herd. This is easy stuff. Uh, It's going to be a multi-billion dollar industry, um, and we're just so excited for folks to learn about it, get their hands in it, and most importantly, contribute to this fundamental foundational piece to the entire uh, healing here, and that is the ICC rating. So if folks want to get in touch with you and if they want want to learn about hemp, how do they do that if they want to contribute, Dion? Yeah, thank you for uh, mentioning that. Yeah, the, it's the ushba.org. That's our website. And you can uh, contribute, whether that's energy helping us or, you know, financially or spreading the information. You know, it's uh, all hands on deck. This is... I think literally the most important thing, you know, that is possible that people could do at the moment. And this whole situation with the certification literally drives me so crazy at the moment that, you know, if I thought it would serve a purpose, I would light my hair on fire and run down the street. I mean, it's just. (laughs) I, I know you would. I would. I mean, it's just so important. 
So I know it's going to happen. You know, all this that we've all been talking about is 100% going to happen, guaranteed for sure. But really, for me, the issue is the time. You know, we're doing such irreparable, stupid damage to ourselves that, yeah, it's just, yeah, I feel the pressure of being on this time clock. And that's why I hope, you know, your listeners and all of us can unite and, you know, change this around as soon as possible. It's here. It's upon us. I think the Grateful, Grateful Dead said it best when they said the future's here. We are it. We're on our own. And we got to work together. Nobody's coming in to save us. We got to work together to do this. And boy, it's people like you, Dion, for year after year, decades now, sacrificing, sacrificing your own personal freedom for every aspect of this plant um, and putting one foot in front of the other here. We're getting it done and building the, a giant coalition from every walk of life now in mainstream. And so again, USHBA, like U.S. Hemp Building Association, ushba.org. Please check it out. Please support this organization. Please support the most incredible and important and critical work being undertaken by this organization. Dion, it's an honor and a pleasure and a privilege to be your friend. Most importantly, to call you my brother. Thank you. And I cannot wait to sleep in this hemp house again tonight. And just one more thing. Please. Uh, I just wanted to mention to everybody, we're going to be one of the main features at NOCO. We're uh, coming up in a few weeks at um, in Denver, and you know we're going to have our own area dedicated and showing people all the possibilities. Awesome. Wonderful. NOCO, the Northern Colorado Hemp Expo, nocohempexpo.com, not going away because of the coronavirus. Hemp doesn't do hysteria. Once again, I cannot wait to sleep in this hemp house again tonight, Dion. Thank you so much for being with us on the show today. We're going to have you back again really soon. Thank you for everything you do, brother. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.